This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. I'm uh, Pedro Del Nido. I'm the chief of cardiac surgery here at Boston Children's. Um, I had the pleasure of knowing uh, Aldo Castaneda for probably the last 20 years, essentially since I arrived here in 1994. I did not work with him directly, uh, but obviously uh, I have been impacted by his legacy and the, the impact that he had at Boston Children's. It's fair to say that uh, he completely changed the face of uh, cardiac surgery, both here at Children's Hospital, but throughout the world. When he joined here in 1972, the many individuals who were here at the time uh, called the period before 1972 as BC, before Castaneda. And the reason for that is because he brought a very different concept of how to manage heart disease in children. He felt that corrective procedures should be done as early as possible in order to return children back to a normal uh, physiology and a normal state as soon as possible. Even though today we think of that as obvious and logical, uh, you know, 50 years ago, that was a radical concept because those kinds of procedures carried an enormous risk. And what he said and challenged the community and, and, and to, to achieve is that that was the goal. It should be the goal, and we need to figure out ways to actually achieve those goals safely and provide a better outcome for these children. So he set the tone. Throughout his career, he promoted that concept and promoted individuals who helped along the way uh, to develop those concepts. He recruited talent. He appreciated uh, individuals who had unique talents and helped them advance their careers as well. He reached across to our cardiology colleagues. Uh, he developed the concept of a, a unit, a, a, an identifiable group of individuals that were multidisciplinary not just surgeons, but cardiologists and anesthesiologists, all working towards the same goal. That was new. Prior to that, there were individuals who cared for children, but not as a group. He introduced that concept here, and that subsequently became the Heart Center, which to this day uh, continues to, to, to exist and thrive. Uh, again, that's part of his legacy. As an individual, I think probably the best way to characterize him was a highly sophisticated, very educated individual, spoke five languages, I believe, grew up in Europe, um, dedicated himself to the care of children um, by training himself and then uh, doing research and developing new techniques. In other words, his entire focus was on improving the lives of, of children and brought all of his skills as a surgeon and importantly as a leader and an individual who was highly respected by everyone who met him. As I said, I never worked with him, but I got to know him uh, after um, I came and uh, gained an enormous respect for what he was, what he had done. He retired from Boston Children's, yet felt that he could still contribute. Um, and his, probably one of his most important legacies is the fact that he went back to his home country, Guatemala, and developed a clinic to treat children with heart defects, which stands to this day and provides care for 
children of all Central America, free of charge, whoever can walk through those doors can get care if, and, and has brought the standards of that clinic up as high as levels of any clinic in Latin America and many of the clinics in the U.S. That's a, a, a remarkable achievement for an individual who already had a full career, had impacted the world of uh, pediatric cardiac surgery in a major way. But then to take on that challenge and be successful at it, I think uh, it speaks a lot about the individual um, and why so many uh, respected him uh, and looked up to him for leadership and really valued his friendship. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and we're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Aldo Castaneda. Dr. Castaneda was for 20 years the William Ladd Professor of Surgery here at Boston Children's Hospital and also the Surgeon-in-Chief during that time. For the past 15 years, Dr. Castaneda has developed and led a clinic for cardiovascular surgery of children in Guatemala and Central America. Dr. Castaneda, it's a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, I wonder if I could begin by asking you um, about your career. Uh, many of my colleagues around the world would be very interested to know, you know, what were the influences that guided you through your career? What brought about these changes? And I know in particular um, that you uh, trained and went to medical school in Guatemala, but then found yourself um, doing surgery um, uh, in Minnesota. And I wonder if we could talk about um, that transition, what drew you to Minnesota, and really kind of the start of your uh, surgical career. Well, I was aware, as a medical student, I was aware that the heart was the only organ that had not been accessible to surgery. I mean, I was interested in surgery in general, but, and I received the New England Journal of Medicine at that time as a medical student. And there I learned that there was, particularly from what I read, was this group in Minnesota uh, who somehow pick up, picked up the role of the central advances in cardiac, intracardiac surgery to develop. The first person who was really instrumental in developing a cardiopulmonary bypass system was Dr. Gibbon. He had been a fellow in Philadelphia, I think it was Jefferson, and uh, for a while had a rotation at the Mass General in Boston. And there, one night he was on call and there was a young lady who had broken her leg, if I remember correctly, and she developed a pulmonary embolism. And Dr. Gibbon was on call, spent all night trying to help her. Then she died. And at the autopsy, they found that the trifurcation of the pulmonary artery was totally occluded by a clot. And he thought that would, the way, otherwise it was a normal heart. That was secondary to her fracture. Mm -hmm that if one could develop a system, a heart-lung machine, so to speak, that would take over the function of the heart and the lungs, 
while you while during that time you could operate on the heart, take out that clot, she would have survived. There were at that time there was a Trendelenburg operation which very few people had had, had success with extracting pulmonary emboli and so on. Well then became a very interesting history and we don't have time to go into it, but he spent 20 years of his life in the cellar of the Mass General. The surgical hierarchy at that time was not particularly interested and thought the guy was a little bit out of shape. But he did get a little room in the cellar of the Mass General to do some experiment. And Harvard Medical School gave him a grant, not a lot, but some grant. And he started in 19, early 1930s. On a, to work on a heart-lung machine. It was quite interesting, alone, without much enthusiasm of the, Dr. Churchill, I think, was the chief of surgery. He thought that was nonsense. Um, but he worked, kept on working. There was a nurse who helped him, who eventually, be, they were there in the cellar every night. So anyhow, they got married eventually, and also, Eventually, he did the first open heart surgery using an artificial heart-lung machine, which is screen oxygenator type. He did six operations, of which only one patient survived it. And there were others also, and the mortality for using an artificial heart-lung machine at that time was about 95%. There was only one survivor. That created a very negative atmosphere in the cardiological world. And Gibbon, Walt Lullahy told me that, Gibbon offered himself to lead a movement in through Congress of the United States to ban or have a moratorium on open heart surgery for indefinite time period. Really? Well, fortunately, it didn't succeed somehow. And another young group of surgeons at the University of Minnesota, that's where Minnesota comes in, led by Walter Lahai and Dr. Richard Varko, had a different idea, which was interesting. They developed in the lab so-called cross-circulation, in which took a human donor, if you want to use that word, and put cannulas through the femoral artery and femoral vein, take out from the venous system of the recipient, of the patient, pump it into the femoral vein of the donor with another catheter in the femoral artery, it was threaded up to the abdominal aorta, to get red blood out, oxygenated blood out from the donor, and pump that into arterial system of the recipient. So it was called controlled cross-circulation, 1953. And they did 46 cases, 46 operations on patients. They did for the first time close ventricular septal defect, atrial septal defect, tetralogy of a low, and 
They had a few, I think there were three complete AV canals. The mortality was high, but nevertheless, they proved, because that was the question, why did, using the heart-lung machine, why did they all die? They proved that one could do an extracorporeal circuit and open the heart, fix something, and that the heart would tolerate that. Was the donor typically a parent? I know in one the case donor was, was mother father. or father. Always mother or father. Did any of the donors? Uh... No. One of the donors, and one of the donors, the circuit had some problem. There was some air embolism uh, with some neurologic deficit, but not, not severe. But it was, of course, it, it was not, it was clear to everybody, it was not a permanent arrangement, but it was a major step against the pessimism that was you know, in the world at that time about the feasibility of open heart surgery. It did show that you could operate on the heart. At the Mayo Clinic, John Kirkland had gone to medical school at Harvard whose father was a professor of radiology at the Mayo Clinic. He had, after that, gone back to Rochester, uh, did his training and stayed on the staff, became interested in heart surgery, and his classmate was Gibbon here at Harvard. So he went with an engineer of the Mayo Clinic, Johnson, uh, Jonas, he went to Philadelphia and looked at the apparatus that Gibbon had built. They looked at it, they found it was somewhat complicated, too much servo mechanisms involved. Anyhow, they modified it, came up with a Mayo-Gibbon oxygenator. It was sort of the Rolls-Royce at the time. Very expensive, but they could do it. Mayo Clinic was rich in all that. Uh, went back to, the, to, back to, uh, to Rochester and started their effort of open heart surgery using a Mayo-Gibbon pump oxygenator. In the meantime, at the University of Minnesota, 90 miles apart, Minneapolis and Rochester are 90 miles apart, they then went away from that cross-circulation using the human, human donor and developed a bubble oxygenator, dig the wall, developed a bubble oxygenator, which in a way was a version of what the physiologists had used in the 19th century for organ perfusions, for direct blood-gas interface. And when I, that was in 1954-1955. And, and then they started their series of open heart surgery using a so-called bubble oxygenator, which is, was plastic that, that hold the total cost of that was on Woolworth. In Woolworth, they bought the, 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 the plastic tubings uh, for, I think it was at that time, $30 or something like that. So there was a significant difference and cheap. And that really popularized cardiac surgery. But for, for two, two and a half years, the only open heart surgery in the world was done between the Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota group. Wow. Interesting. Yes. Uh, so that was the beginning of open heart surgery. I was a medical student and read about that and uh, 
at that time, the medical school had a laboratory, and I did some, I mean, I didn't do nothing particular, but I did get a pump from the ladies of the diplomatic corps in Guatemala. I talked to give them a talk, and so said, we need a pump, we have to buy a pump. The pump we bought a pump, primitive uh, pump, but nevertheless, we had it. And I got some bags to do the oxygenator. And as a thesis, medical school thesis, we, uh, we I used that to do 10 dogs. We put 10 dogs on bypass, opened the ventricles, closed it. And uh, as I say, I did nothing particular, but I mean, nevertheless, it helped me, the thesis helped me in part that I was accepted as a resident at the University of Minnesota. That's how I got, I, I, that's the only place I applied by the way, I would do, what did I know? I didn't know any. But I applied to University of Minnesota and, and well, there were two circumstances. One was that I sent a thesis along with my application. And they was apparently were quite interested that a guy in Guatemala suddenly came up with that as a medical student. But there was another event, there was an international congress in Guatemala, and I was one of the interpreters of a simultaneous inter uh, 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 translations. And one of the people who was there was the chief of psychi child psychiatry at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Jensen. And he gave a talk, but he started this talk with a, with a joke. As you know, there's been the Scandinavians in, in, in Minnesota, many Scandinavians. Lillehei, for example, is Norwegian, not a Norwegian name. Between the Norwegian and the, and the Swedes, there was always some jokes that the Swedes considered the Norwegian a little dumb or whatever. So there were all, all these jokes. Well, this guy started his talk on psychiatry with this joke. I didn't understand the joke. But I told the people, why well, now I don't understand the joke, but when I tell you, you have to laugh, you have to laugh. So I said, laughed, and ha, 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 everybody started to laugh. The guy went back to the University of Minnesota and said, there's this genius kid in Guatemala who, out, who understands and could translate my joke. Years afterwards, I told him that I hadn't understood that anything about his joke. <laughs> but anyhow, so I was lucky to be admitted as a resident at the University of Minnesota at that time. Uh, I did there my, it was very academically oriented program in which we did clinical, of course. At that time it was combined, it was general surgery and cardiothoracic was still all together. And I got a master's degree in biochemistry, a PhD in experimental surgery and physiology. So we were academically oriented for an academic career. Dr. Longenstein was the chief, and it was, it was an interesting time at the University of Minnesota. And then when I finished, I, they asked me to stay on on the staff. I was lucky. So I was there then uh, as assistant professor, associate professor, professor, until 72 when they, started, they offered me the job, the Dr. Gross retired from Children's and they offered me the job. 
I was very amazed about that. I didn't have the slightest idea why they would select me. To, to this day, I don't know how they selected me. You, you don't understand why the search committee turned to you from uh, Boston when Dr. Gross was retiring? And yeah, you? I didn't understand because the names that were involved who had been already here to look at the job. They're all very famous guys. <laughs> I, I was nowhere. I was, I was nobody in Minnesota. I mean, I had some published some stuff and stuff, but I really, to this day, don't quite know whether they made a mistake or not. I don't know that either. <laughs> I don't think it was but a anyhow, mistake. that's how it was. I came here in 1972. The children. So before I ask you about that era, could I ask you this? Um, you know, at one extreme, um, someone. Uh, like me, looks back at that time and says, you know, what was it about Dr. Gibbon and Dr. Lillehei and you um, that were able to move the field forward? Is, is, does the field move forward because um, talented individuals move the field forward, or is it, is it a combination of talented individuals and the, the era and the time are appropriate for the advance? Well, I think that's an interesting question because you see you have the, you have two aspects to that, good examples. Gibbon was not supported really, as I told you, the chief of surgery at the Mass General, Dr. Churchill, really didn't believe that he ever would do that, and that this was possible. So I was in this little corner in the second floor of the, of the, of the basement of the Mass General, and he got that little grant from the then finally, he made some contact with, uh, with Watson from the um, um, uh, IBM, and they gave him some money. But he really did not have the backing, enthusiastic backing of people. He fought for 20 years to do that. On the other hand, at the University of Minnesota, the person who has to be mentioned is Dr. Wang, Dr. Wangenstein, also a Norwegian name, Wangenstein. was a very extraordinary individual who had trained at the University of Minnesota. And the Mayo brothers, who was at the Mayo Clinic, Charles, and recognized that this guy was special. And out of their pocket, sent the guy, in those years, you know, American surgeon had to go to Europe. It was the other way around to become or have a chance to sort of an academic appointment. And he spent two years in Europe paid by the Mayo brothers. Interesting. And he came back and built a very strong academic department. We all, I mean, we all who went there had really the sort of a moral obligation to not go into private practice, but to do academic surgery. So the, the ambiance that he created in that department was very research-oriented and very innovative for innovation. He himself was a general surgeon. He did a lot about gastric suction and stuff and cancer surgery. And, and, uh, he was not involved personally. He wasn't personally involved in this cardiac effort, but he supported Lillehei and Varko's idea strongly. So you had the two juxtaposed systems. One where there was a visionary leader who supported exactly. the faculty. Uh, uh, Gibbon didn't have that. Right. What was it in you, though, that, um, you know, you're in Guatemala, you're a medical student, 
And in retrospect, that's a huge accomplishment. You put 10 animals successfully on bypass and successfully decannulated them. I didn't do anything. I mean, I read through the New England Journal of Medicine and then I got some other reprints and so on. And then, I mean, I copied what they did in Minnesota. But what was the motivation? What do you think was the well, inner I drive? To do it. No, I thought that I did. I, I somehow I caught fire. I'm not quite sure how exactly. But I mean, it just interested me that it was the last organ that now was being attacked surgically. And I thought that was fantastic. And since a lot of people had heart problems, you know, Guatemala, for example, rheumatic heart disease was very strong. It was very common at that time. And people died. So I thought that that was a fantastic opportunity. And it's true, why exactly, and to be honest with you, I don't exactly remember how I became so enthused about it, but, well, I liked history always a lot. Always I was interested in general history and, and, and medical history. So I'd seen all what these people did, that Bill wrote, you know, for the gastrointestinal surgery and so on, breakthroughs. And it was very clear to me that this was a breakthrough moment, very important breakthrough moment in, 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 in the history of surgery, that the heart could be finally attacked. Now the interesting thing, by the way, all of the efforts originally for open heart surgery were for congenital heart disease, no acquired heart disease. So it was all children initially? All children. Or adults with congenital heart disease. Now, the other thing I learned there, of course, it was a resident, was we saw, they came, since there are only two institutions who did in the world, who did the heart surgery, so they came from all over the world. I saw that many came too late. You see, they had pulmonary vascular obstructive disease, and Jesse Edwards was in pathology and developed an understanding of the effect of pulmonary hypertension on the evolution of pulmonary vascular obstructive disease and so on. So um, uh, it, it became very clear to me from relatively early that that corrective operation had to be done early because if they persisted, they caused secondary damage to the heart and the lungs. Now at that time, what was early in your mind? Well, early I thought, first I thought before, before going to school. That was my first thing. But then slowly we came down to the conclusion, no, that's too late. And then we started, once I was on the staff, we had a lab. Once we were on the staff, we already had a lab. We had to have a lab, we had to get money from the NIH or whatever to do some research. So I had a lab. And there we did, one of the experiments we did, was important, was we put two kilogram puppies to see if they tolerated cardiopulmonary bypass. We did a lot of experiments and came to the conclusion that that did very well. We looked at blood, we looked at uh, the lungs, we looked at the heart and so on, and the central nervous system uh, to dissect out how they would respond to cardiopulmonary bypass at that early age, I mean, two kilogram puppies. And uh, we developed some instruments for in infant cardiac surgery also and stuff. So that, that work, um, we started already in Minnesota to earlier kinds, but when we really made the breakthrough through the neonate, first months of life, was here at Children's, 
where we did the first arterial switch operation in neonates. It was a 10-day-old child. Uh, and we did, we did a complete correction with a so-called arterial switch operation. And uh, that, that opened the, the movement of, of congenital cardiac surgery towards the neonates. What year was that? The first 83. switch? 83. I mean, we did experimental work from 60. The paper, the first paper, we, we probably was about 66 in Minnesota still. I came to Boston, 72 to children. Uh, and we did the first neonate, in clinical neonate, in, in 82, January 2nd, 82. So, Dr. Kassner, can I ask you this? Um, you, know, you just clearly described that your research was going in that direction. And so I'm interested to know, was it your accumulated uh, belief from the observations that you had had that they came too late, these patients came to Minnesota too late, and that really what was driving the movement to uh, repair uh, newborns was based on your observation. And candidly, everything else had to fall into place, the anesthesia, the bypass, the pre and post-operative care. Correct. Or was it that technology was simultaneously evolving that made better preoperative diagnosis, better postoperative care? Which well, I'm, I'm, I'm interested well, in which is the lead no point? Never. I mean, I don't try to imply that I'm the only one that, that, uh, that did that. The Jap Japanese had been interested in operating and they developed the technique of deep hypothermic circulatory arrests at 20 degrees centigrade. We used it at the beginning, but again, we thought that was not, we did some studies and particularly as associate with Dr. Jonas, Richard Jonas, now in Washington, um, that uh, that circulatory arrest, even at 20 degrees centigrade, if you really study those children post-op well, they had some neurologic deficit. Then we switched again back to cardiopulmonary bypass that switch operation at the neonatal level, the first kid was 10 days old. That was a, that was a breakthrough. Now, of course, in, in, a, in a well established unit in the first world, the distribution is about 60% are neonates. Imagine this, the, the, the tremendous amount. And about 30 are within the first year, and only 10% are beyond the, the first year. While in the third world, like we in Guatemala, for example, we have, we have about 5% in the neonate because their diagnoses are not being made early enough in outlying countryside and so on. So uh, we have a long way to go, but and the good units around the world, that's what they do. So, so that neonatal surgery is here to stay, that's no question about it. What were the challenges um, as it evolved? I mean, I, I imagine there were challenges in, in making sure that the preoperative diagnosis was correct, that the operative technique was correct and, and the best it could be. But uh, you know, along that kind of chain of care, what were the particular challenges of moving the repair ever earlier in life? Well. 
you know, one has to be very clear. And by the way, I even found it out more so when I went to Guatemala than when I was here. Hell, the surgeon is not the big hero of this whole thing. That's nonsense. This cardiac stuff, it's, it's, it requires a team. And it is, a, it is like a chain. And everything works okay if all the, all the parts of the chain are okay. If one fails, the whole thing fails. I mean, what I mean by that is, if surgery is no good, no good either. Yeah, but not only no good. Anesthesia, heart lung bypass team, post-operative management. I mean, we're all dependent on one another. So I think that that people, I mean, visitors, you know, visitors came a lot to children's and all that. One thing I think we did here pretty well was that we had, an, we had created an environment and everybody was recognized as equal. It wasn't a big surgeon because he did the surgery. You can do the best surgery if the, if the pump fails, the anesthesia is lousy, and the post-operative management is lousy. The results are not very good. That is obvious. So in particular with nursing, you know, that was, that was interesting. I always felt that the nurses were extremely well educated, very capable, but were underused in general. I mean, what they were allowed to do. And the people who, the, and the nurses wanted to do more, but their hierarchy, the head nurse, the, the chief nurse of the hospital was very reluctant. Interesting. To let them think more independently yeah. and act independently. I thought they are in the intensive care unit. You know, when we got the residents every year, we had new residents. The first thing I told them is that, listen, you might be think you are very smart Harvard graduates and all that kind of stuff. Then nurses know more than most doctors. They stay with the patient there on the bedside in the, post in the, in the intensive care unit. They know the patient better than we do. We waltz in, waltz out, which is almost true. Uh, and I was very, very, I had much respect for the nurses. And I think they noticed that. And, and, and we created an environment in which everybody was equal. Could I turn now and ask you some questions about um, what it was like for you to be a, a pediatric heart surgeon? Um, and uh, some of the things I'm wondering are, um, what, was it, what was it like talking to parents over time? Because when you started, the, uh, the mortality rate was higher, um, and yet the parents were, in the, in the earlier part of your career, I think likely more deferential, perhaps. Um, but did talking to parents change? Um, did, did, did it become well, no, more? That's an interesting subject. Some people do it well and some people don't. By, by nature, I don't know exactly why. I mean, I don't. Uh, I've felt that it's tremendous, the complicated. For a mother, for example, had that baby, no, in utero for so many months, nine months. Not having the slightest idea that the child could be born with something wrong in the heart. Who knows that? I know almost nobody knows that. 
Then somebody, somebody comes and says, hey, there's something wrong with the heart of your child and it needs an operation. I mean, it is a mind-boggling situation. So I was always very, uh, as I told you, I, I, many things I didn't do well, but that I think I did well. I did have empathy, but not false empathy, but I realized it was a very complicated thing. But I also learned it's very difficult to teach that. I gave the example, because I, I think that I did well. I spent patients and I made drawings and then I wanted to understand why and how it comes about and so on. So I spent a good time con with the, the night before or the day before with the patient to go into details. But you know that some people just don't have that empathy or whatever it is. It's very difficult. It's much easier to teach surgery than to teach human interconnection, human relationships, I think. Did, did it become, I'm, I, I'm trying to find the words to phrase this, when things wouldn't go well in the operation, how, how, do you, how did you handle that? How did you learn how to handle that? I mean, there must have been some cases that uh, were very difficult. And um, over the course of one's career, were you able to accept that more easily? Or does it remain very difficult and there would be cases that you'd go home and brood about, you know, in the last decade of your career as much as you did in the first decade of your career? Well, then again, depends on individuals. You might be surprised to know that Dr. Varko, who I already mentioned once, a tough guy, he couldn't, he couldn't live with that. He would stop operating for about a month, for a week, before he would do another operation. And Dr. Gross, world famous, when a patient died, he would close up the door, he would disappear for a week or two. It just shows you, and, and they were sort of tough guys, you know, they seemed to be tough guys, they were not that tough. It's difficult to talk to parents. I was always very frank with, well, first of all, pre-op, we already talked about, you know, about the complexity of the cases and stuff, and here, we did mostly complex cases. I mean, we got referred mostly complex cases, not easy cases. The mortality was relatively low, but it might be very low on paper, but for a parent who loses the child, that's not something on the paper, that's a fact. And, uh, but I had, I, I always in much, I went into details and told them why, and that the overwhelming majority felt that we had done the best we could. I must say, I didn't, uh, uh, and, and I got very beautiful letters written afterwards of, from patients, as a matter of fact, better, maybe better letters from patients who had, uh, when the child died, and that they knew that we had tried our very best, and they wrote very beautiful letters. Uh, but it is, a, it is. I mean, it is a difficult issue. But fortunately, on the other hand, you know, the, the, the incidence, the, the mortality for cardiac operation went down tremendously over time. Right now, 
A good institution, it's about 1%, something like that. Two are very complex cases right now. But children groups, excellent. Michigan, there are a number of... It, it is surprisingly low. It must be very rewarding for you to have seen that evolve over the course of yeah. your career. Um, Dr. Castaneda, could I turn now and ask you, um, uh, you uh, finished your tenure here as uh, Surgeon-in-Chief and the William Ladd Professor at Harvard Medical School, um, but you, uh, you, you didn't go take it easy. You um, went and uh, established this clinic uh, in Guatemala, which exists to this day, um, and your determination was to uh, really uh, bring pediatric cardiac surgery to Guatemala and Central America. Um, could you talk about that? What, what, were, what were you thinking when you started that program 15 years ago and today it's a, a thriving center? Um, and well, I tell you, I, I felt, first of all, I'm not typically Guatemalan. I was born in Europe, grew up in Europe, trained in this country for 40, I mean, I spent 43 years, I think, in this country. So I'm not typical product of that. On the other hand, I was grateful that I went to medical school there and graduated because I needed a diploma to be accepted someplace. I mean, um, medical schools are not very good. But I had a, I had a sense, some sense of uh, gratitude towards having given me a medical education uh, and thought I had some offers here in this country and in Europe, but I didn't. I, I, I know they didn't really need me. I mean, I don't think so. So I thought in Guatemala they had they had had some attempts at heart surgery in children. They had a mortality of over eighty percent. So I said we could establish something. I was a little optimistic. It's very difficult. It proved very difficult. And the circumstances are such that we'll never, ever duplicate, let's say, Children's Hospital or any other good hospital. It's a cultural, cultural difficulties, economic difficulties, and so on. But we established a pretty good unit. I mean, for Latin America, we're on the map. What? And by the way, we only operate on poor people. I have no salary. I mean, I work without salary or anything. Um, uh, pro bono, everything. Because the people with money, which is very few, they go to the States or the United or to Europe. I don't blame them. Uh, so we, we operate on only poor who cannot pay. Imagine the cost there is about 10 percent, 10% of what it costs here. But it doesn't offer, of course, the same. But even the 10 percent is, 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 is a number that's impossible for the poor people to ever even think of being able to pay. I mean, to the hospital. I'm not talking about surgery. So uh, we have thought that's that's why I spend most of the time in trying to get money all over the place. And when it's like a beggar, 
you know, then we have a foundation here, as you know, maybe. So the Aldo Castaneda Foundation supports most of that center. Yeah. What the government gives is insufficient, highly insufficient. Oh, it's a struggle. It's a major struggle. But, but we have, I mean, we've established a unit which is pretty good. Not comparable to here, but it's pretty good. And uh, there we are, struggling every day. I didn't think I would be still working at 85, at 84, I'm 84 years old. But then, but you gotta do something, otherwise you die anyway, well, die anyhow, but. How many surgical procedures? Uh, do about 500 a year. My gosh, that's a big program. That's a big program uh, almost anywhere in the world. Well, in Europe had gone down, you know, in Europe, interesting, even the very Catholic countries, Italy, Spain, etc. The numbers, the unit that does 200, 250 cases a year is a big unit. They're doing abortions for the presence of even simple defects. For children diagnosed in utero. In utero. Dr. Castaneda, I wonder if I could turn now um, and ask you some questions related to, um, you know, what, what makes a, a good physician? Um, you know, in the room today we have a young woman who's going to go to medical school. What advice would you have for young doctors now? Um, what is it about a career that they should focus on? What are the good habits and the good characteristics? Well, I still believe that medicine is a very um, attractive profession. If you do it in the right way, if you are not contaminated by a pathologic need for making money, which is a problem, but if you take it as a as a as a occupation that can do good and try to do good as much as you can. It's very rewarding from a point of view, and whatever specialty makes a difference what specialty it is. No, it's gratifying to see somebody who was very sick that you could participate in making better. I think that's a very gratifying, gratifying way to look at it. Um, I think one has to be careful. Well, now, now the old age comes through, but you know, I always think that before it was good and now it's not good. It's not true. I think now it's fantastic. But I think technology has advanced in great measure in a very positive way. But at the same time, it has eroded a little bit the relationship, human relationship between physician and patient. You know, in cardiology, I see it even in Guaymar. They comment and they do without, they don't know the history, nothing, they do an echo. You know what I mean? So, so one has lost a little bit, no, quite a bit, the inter, human interrelationship with, with, with physician and, uh, and the patient. I think that's, that's universal, true, universally true. Now, at the same time, of course, much more accurate diagnoses are being made than ever before, and so on. So there are many positives. But one has to find a, find a balance with the humanistic part. 
he who only knows medicine doesn't know medicine. So I think one has to be sure that in an overall cultural background, be that in art, be that in literature, be that history, whatever, beyond medicine, I think is important. If you only know medicine, as I say, that's not enough, I think. And that is, that's not easy to achieve because one is, you know, the time that one has to dedicate to medicine is very high. But I always made it a point to read at night, even if it was very late, I would, I would read non-medical stuff. And I think one has to have extracurricular interests. Um, and I have a general cultural bagage to carry around with you. We hear a lot nowadays about work-life balance. Uh, and indeed, it's even legislated uh, in Europe and the United States that there are duty hours, that the, uh, um, that the young uh, residents can only work so many hours. And that's not for work-life balance as much as it is to make sure that they're not fatigued. But um, you know, looking back uh, and looking forward, um, first on the question of work-life balance, um, as a, as a physician, especially if you're going to be, you know, dedicated to being the best you can be, is it possible to be, you know, dedicated, fully absorbed, um, and yet uh, to maybe more have a balanced uh, work family life than in the uh, early years of your career when such a thing probably wasn't? Well, my generation is a bad example because there's no question. You see, for me going to the hospital in Minnesota, it was like Christmas every day. Well, everything new, something new was coming about. Well, this was a fantastic atmosphere. At the expense of the family, we worked too hard. I mean, we were on call every second night. Loving it, by the way, as residents. We loved it because it was fantastic. But, uh, I have to I have to admit that much of that was also at the expense of a family. We were not that good fathers, so to speak, or playing baseball with the kids or whatever. Uh, it's interesting. One of my daughters, they asked somebody asked her once, "Oh, your dad is always away." Well, I didn't know any different. I thought they were all like that. <laughs> so, I mean, it depends how you look at it. But, uh, and somehow that came out okay, but it's different. I, I, I don't, you know, I didn't live that thing anymore that is so legislated that they have to go home, the residents and stuff. We wouldn't have liked it. That I know 100%. But it's better, I don't know. I don't know. To, to reach excellence, I thought a little bit about that. To reach excellence, you can do it on a, on a schedule. I mean, it takes no time to think, time to do, so on. And to be the perfect father and the perfect, perfect well, well, women even more so. 
some bit, some colleagues told me, said, well, you know, you can, you can be a good mother, doctor, and wife. There's no way they can do all three equally well if you're a doctor. Very difficult. I think they're right. Um, Dr. Castaneda, um, do you have any final uh, thoughts you'd like to share with us about um, your career, the evolution of uh, congenital heart surgery, or final thoughts to um, young people starting out on their career? I think with all the different circumstances that time brings, not to any professional right now and then here, uh, insurance and, uh, uh, and so on. Despite all that, it's still extremely attractive profession. Now one has to love it because if you go into it for money making, that's a wrong approach for sure, because first of all, then you should go into business because you'll never make as well as some business people. But I think it's a fulfilling profession. It's the most humane of societies and the most scientific of humanities. So I would certainly um, I would say endorse that if somebody really wants to do it, he has to do it well, and that the motivation has to be an intrinsic motivation, knowing that, but there are many other professions who have similar problems. I mean, none is perfect, but I still think it's one of the most rewarding things. I personally, looking back, don't regret one second of it. Well, Dr. Castaneda, thank you for being with us today. And uh, I know I speak for my colleagues around the world. You have our admiration for all the things you've done, and especially for what you're continuing to do uh, to this day in uh, Guatemala. So thank you for being thank with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.